First thing I want to do today is a recap of last week. Very simple recap. Uh, why does the church exist? You got a couple of blanks there to fill it out as you remember. Why does the church exist? What's the first one? Glorify God. Glorify God. Amen. That is the ultimate purpose of everything that God does is to put his own image on display. What's the second one? Make the gospel visible. Visible. We talked about how uh, the church has a message in which we preach, but the community of life together actually makes the gospel real. You see God's forgiveness in the way that we forgive one another as, as we welcome one another in the same way Jesus has welcomed us, right? And then lastly, and the more commonly known one, what's the purpose of the church? To make what? Disciples, that's right, of all nations. Now this morning, uh, we, well, over the past few weeks, what we've done is we've looked at very foundational things like what's the essence of what a church is? What's the essence of what uh, a church should do? And now we really get into the weeds of, okay, practically, how do we seek to obey this? Like, how do we seek to pursue this kind of thing that we've studied over the last four weeks? Body of God the Son, family of God the Father, temple of God the Spirit. What does it look like in, in actuality? It's one thing to talk about it in, in theory. It's another thing to pursue this in reality in the 21st century America, right? And so what does it look like for us to do that? So let me just describe the process at our church, which all of you, most of you know, uh, the process for how someone joins themselves to this particular fellowship in St. Rose, Louisiana. So here's the process, right? Step one, what do you have to do? What do you do? Does anybody know? Well, first you got to attend church. You got to show up, right? <laughs> Step one, that's great. That's right. A membership class. There's a class, right? So step one, there's a class, six-week class that you go through in a one-on-one discipleship type relationship or perhaps a two-on-two if you're a married couple. Uh, so there's a class, six weeks, tells this is what we believe as a church, helps you discern whether that you're, we want to join yourself to us, right? Step two is a conversation with a pastor where you uh, just explain how you came to faith in Jesus and you explain your understanding of the gospel, right? Step three is a covenant. You say, okay, I commit to join this particular fellowship and this particular fellowship by way of a vote uh, at a member meeting. They vote to commit to you as well, right? So class, conversation, covenant. When we started St. Rose Community Church, I had many conversations, even with some people on the core team, about the slowness of the process for someone to onboard onto our church, right? I mean, if you're a church planter, you're wanting to grow your church, you're wanting to speed the process in which people feel comfortable and can join your fellowship. You're not trying to slow down. You're wanting to speed up because you need more people. I mean, that's one of the biggest things you need as a new church plant. But we kind of did the opposite, and we slowed down and pumped the brakes. Uh, so some people kind of thought that was insane, um, but one of the things that happened early on in the life of our church, it's in the introduction of our membership class, is a story that if you've been a part of the church, you know the story because it helps solidify why we were doing what we were doing, right? So um, some people in the room may not be familiar with the story, so let me share it briefly. Second Sunday ever at St. Rose Community Church, stand up, preach at the end. We would love for you to join our fellowship. We want you to join our church. If you're interested, you can take a membership class uh, and learn about our church, and we can learn about you. You can join. That's all I said. Amen. Said the benediction. See you later. 
greeting people. And then I have someone run into the room and say, Brandon, come quick. There's somebody outside who needs your help. It was Andreas. Andreas was outside. He was, I guess, 18 at that time, kind of doing parking lot duty. And there's an, there's an older woman chewing his tail out because she's angry about what I said about having to take a membership class. So I come out to intercept the situation, try to help poor Andreas. I don't know if I ever forget the fact, you know, Andreas is quiet. And so he's like, <laughs> he's just like, just utterly shocked. He's only been a Christian for, you know, a few months. I mean, he's just stunned, right? And, uh, and so I come out, ma'am, how can I help you? You know, what's going on? And she says, uh, I cannot believe that there's a process to join this church. I mean, the, the, you guys are closing people out. And, and I said, well, man, maybe you misunderstood. There's not an essay. There's not a test. When we say class, we just mean a few weeks to get to know you. You get to know us. Make sure you know what we believe. Didn't satisfy her. And her words were, I've been baptized three times. And you're telling me that I've got to take a class to be a part of this church. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> you know, in my mind, I'm thinking that's exactly why you need to take the class. Because <laughs> you think number of... That's right. She thinks number of baptisms was somehow like badges, like of, of honor. And, and so, I, yeah, karate belts. Yeah, like notches. And I'm like, okay, this is not good. And then she follows up with, um, I was saved in this church and teaching Sunday school to the kids the very next week. That's what she said. First Baptist... St. Rose. Whew. Um, so I, as gently as I could, said, ma'am, that's exactly why we have the class, to straighten out your view of baptism, to straighten out things so you understand what we believe. And that, of course, didn't make her happy. Pilled out of the driveway, never came back again. So we kind of assembled together as a core team at that point, because there's only a few of us. And we talked through what just happened. And people that had been hesitant about the membership class beforehand now were like, oh, because I asked the question, what if our process had been the process we all grew up with, which is walk the aisle, give a verbal testimony that you're a Christian, and then look around and say, we welcome sister so-and-so or brother so-and-so into the fellowship. She might have been teaching Sunday school the next week to our children. And would that have been a good thing for our church? Probably not. And so it was a big moment in the life of our church where we said, okay, we struck something probably important for the future of our church, and that is to pay careful attention to who's joining themselves to us, right? Now, that's, that's a good story. It helped a lot of people understand, like, why we were doing what we were doing, but we don't make decisions about how to do the church based off of pragmatics, right? We don't just do something because it makes sense. Is there any biblical precedent for doing something like a membership class or like a membership interview. You know, uh, obviously we're treading the extra biblical waters. You don't, you don't see in the pastoral epistles, Paul writing to Timothy, make sure you write a little booklet, have everyone go through it, do an interview at the end, sign a covenant. You don't, you don't find any of that stuff. And so the question is, are there principles grounded in the Bible that, that we attempt to obey, right, in our particular church context, in our particular culture, which thus led to our process, okay? So I want you to turn with me to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. <clears throat> we got a lot of ground to cover, so that's why I'm talking fast. Acts 20, 
Some of y'all are like, you talk fast every week. This doesn't matter. (laughs) Acts 20, verse 28 is where we're starting. This is Paul leaving the church in Ephesus. He has gathered together the elders in Ephesus, which even in this text, you see the word elder, overseer, pastor being used interchangeably. We'll talk about that more next week. But he's speaking to the elders, and this is his final sort of command to them. This is what you should be about if you're going to be elders in the church at Ephesus. Acts 20, verse 28 through 30. I'm going to read it, and then we're going to pause, and we're just going to pray for the remainder of our time. Verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. All the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Now, I know after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. All right, let's. Let's pray before we dive in deeper. Uh, Lord, we, we ask that you would uh, help us, God, to, to see um, the importance of your church being a devoted fellowship of people committed to one another. And Father, help us to understand how that expresses itself in our church and how we can be faithful members and why membership is an important thing. Uh, represented in your word, God. So we pray, uh, give us grace, help us see. In Jesus' name, amen. So pastors, elders, overseers, right, are, are obviously God's idea for the church, right? We, we didn't make up that concept. The idea of having shepherds under shepherds caring for people is God's idea. We'll look at that in a lot more in depth next week. Um, And we'll spend time talking about elders, deacons, and then members and how they work together to accomplish the mission. But for now, I just want us to focus on the responsibility to which God has left these elders in Ephesus. Paul urges them as overseers, and he gives them the word, pay careful attention to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, right? So Paul has in mind a particular group of people that these elders are responsible for paying attention to, right? So so this particular group of people are God's church, precious to God, purchased by the blood of Jesus, and these men are called to pay careful attention to them. Now, at the very least, that means that these elders should know this group of people, should know that they truly are bought with the blood of Christ and should know if there's any sort of danger signs that might point to these people actually being wolves, right? They should know those who are a part of their flock and those who are not a part of the flock, those who are part of the flock and those who might be a danger to the flock. They should know who is teaching anything amongst that flock. Because the follow-up warning is there'll be people rise up even among the group who are teaching things contrary to the truth of God. Now, there's another text uh, that, that, that speaks similarly that really should make pastors tremble. And that's in Hebrews 13. In Hebrews 13, verse 17, these are words to the church member, but, 
they also reveal a depth of responsibility for the pastor here. Now, Hebrews 13, verse 17. And on your handouts, I've got a little thing at the bottom um, that says important text of Scripture. So as we go, I'm going to hit a lot of Scriptures. If you just want to jot the reference down there for your later study, um, that would be helpful to you. Because you don't want to just take my word for it. Hebrews 13, 17 The author of Hebrews says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Now, that verse should scare pastors to death, right? (laughs) Like, there's in some sense, right, thankful for the blood of Jesus, I'll be forgiven of all things. But in some sense, there's a responsibility that I will give an account to the Lord for the people that he's charged me to care for their souls, right? Now, that's a huge deal. That's, that's important. Right? This is written to the member, but there's something that you learn about the responsibility of the leaders here. I have a responsibility to a particular group of people. Now, I don't keep watch over the souls of every Christian in St. Charles Parish. That that would be impossible for me to do. There's a particular responsibility I have, though, to the flock of SRCC, more so than FBC Luling, right? Now, do I want FBC Luling to thrive? Do I want to help them? Do I want to be a good Christian to them? Absolutely. But am I going to give an account for the person in FBC Luling's church? I don't think so. So, so here's what I want to do. Um, and this is all leading toward reason number one why we would have a membership process, why we would even use the language of members. And this is reason number one. Without meaningful membership, pastors can't pay careful attention. Pastors can't pay careful attention. Now, what do I mean by meaningful membership? I mean, I, I mean it means something to join yourself to this particular group of people. So, so it doesn't mean that every church has got to do what St. Rose Community Church does when it comes to defining what a member is or how someone becomes a member. But there must be some sort of meaningfulness to it, right? Um, For too long, we've assigned pastors the task of being the CEO of our companies, and we've charged them with the task of adding more people to our midst. Meanwhile, they don't know or care for the people that God's entrusted them. Now, I I didn't print it out. I didn't bring it with me. Um, But I have a membership directory of every person whom has said, I commit myself to St. Rose, or I submit myself to the leadership and the direction of St. Rose, in which I've committed, okay, I'm going to keep watch over these souls. We've got 146 names on that list right now, and I could tell you out of that 146 names which names I think are in a spiritually sort of dangerous position right now. They're sort of wandering sheep off into the field by themselves, right? And we're praying and trying to have conversations and we're trying to get them to come back. But I know who they are. I mean, it's, it's less than five, really, that are in that super dangerous position. Um, but you could probably say there's a little bit more that are, that are heading that direction. And that's always the case, right? Sheep are always wondering. They're always biting. They're always <laughs> falling into pits and stuff. So, so it's just part of the work of the shepherd is to know. And I know that I am in a healthy place as a pastor by how many times I'm looking into what is the second most important book in my life. First being the Bible, second being that membership book. I know I'm in a healthy place in a pastor by how often I'm looking at that and praying for the people 
that I'm shepherding. Um, Because it's super easy to get distracted from that. Um, Because that often is where the hardest work is, uh, is in, is in that, that, that type of work. Um, So, I don't know where I'm at. So meaningful membership or covenantal church membership makes pastoral ministry possible. It helps me know who it is that I'm responsible for and who it is that I'm not uh, as responsible for. I don't want to say not responsible for at all, (laughs) but not as responsible for. Who I have the obligation to chase until it hurts. Um, Now, uh, look back at verse 20 again. Pay careful attention to, oh, sorry, verse 28 of Acts 20. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Now, there's assumption here that these people whom they are charged to care for, to pay careful attention are, that they're covered in the blood of Jesus. These are Christians, right? <laughs> no, no. It's sad that we have to, to, to state this, right? <laughs> but to be a part of the church, there, you must be a born-again believer. In fact, you, you cannot join yourself meaningfully to a church unless you're genuinely born again. Well, how do we know who's genuinely born again or not? Well, in the first century, there was a big public marker of this, Right? Uh, and in the Bibles, and we're going to do it today. What is that big public marker? Baptism, right? So there's a blank there. Baptism equals, maybe there is not a blank. No, no used to be a blank, should have been a blank. Baptism, you can write this down. Baptism equals visible declaration of salvation. Visible declaration of salvation. Now, Remember, we looked at Acts 2 at the beginning of the church. The order was they received the word, then they were publicly baptized, and then they devoted themselves to the fellowship. So that's the order. Receive the word, are saved, publicly profess that salvation, devote themselves to the fellowship. It's a public symbol of a joining God's set-apart people by the same faith. That's the prerequisite of being a part of the people of God, baptism. Now, the problem is... Modern American evangelicalism is a different context than first century Jerusalem. So publicly professing allegiance to Christ and alignment with this group of people in the first century was was a public allegiance to the Christ that was crucified 50 days prior. Right. It was an alignment with the group of people that Rome saw as the enemy, that the Sanhedrin saw as the enemy. I mean, you publicly got down in a river and said, I'm with the guys you're killing. <laughs> Baptism cost you something, right? So, so you didn't, there wasn't a motivation to be publicly baptized because it meant a public break from your Judaism, a public break from your Romanism, a public break from everything that you were, and everyone saw it, right? And so, although false converts did happen, uh, it wasn't a seedbed of false converts like 21st century America is, right? So, so in the 21st century, differently than the first century, right, baptism in most Western contexts is not costly at all, Right? I mean, people in Sudan and North Korea aren't lining up to get baptized in the river for everyone to see. In America, however, public profession will not provoke persecution yet. In fact, in many circles over the last hundred years, 
Christianity can be socially advantageous. It's why the big Baptist church in town had the mayor and the sheriff and political offices and and big businessmen. Because you want a thriving business, go to the group of 500 people who feel morally obligated to buy from you. (laughs) Go, Go to the big group of 500 people who feel morally obligated to vote for you. So, so, so there's these other motivations in our cultural Christian context, which makes baptism just an exchange for some other good that you actually want, right? Now, no cost at all. I once had a lady, uh, and, and so, so if you've got this combination of no cost at all for saying that you're a Christian, right? And then you've got pastors who aren't paying careful attention at all, whether you're a Christian or not. They're just happy to have more butts in the seats, more budget, bigger buildings. As long as you're there, whether you're an unconverted mayor or not, we're happy and we'll throw you on the finance committee if it means you'll give some more, right? So now you have this this context where unconverted people can not only survive in the local church, they can thrive. They can thrive and be happy in the local church. I once had a lady in our church tell me she wanted to be baptized which is great. Like she came up and said, I want to be baptized. Awesome. I didn't know her super well. I was like, well, let's get together. Let's meet. Let's talk. We get into the meeting and talking and going into the membership class. As we get into deeper discussion, I realize that she is a not so recovering drug addict, still dabbling with narcotics, which is great. Praise the Lord if she's like come to faith and she's wanting to get baptized. But she thought the baptismal experience would be a supernatural high. She was asking me, what does it feel like when the water, like, washes off of you? And I'm starting to realize she doesn't understand the gospel, doesn't want the gospel, doesn't want to turn away from her drugs, but was wanting to know what it felt like to physically be baptized. And I'm wondering how many churches would have baptized her without ever even having the deeper conversation and reported their numbers to the whatever convention they're a part of, right? I'm guessing a lot of churches. Actually, I'm betting she's already been baptized at several churches to, to, to have whatever that feeling she was seeking. And I can't tell you how many people I've sat across from the table with in a, in a final conversation testimony time, right? Where the testimony is, I was baptized at such and such VBS. I was baptized at such and such youth camp. I was baptized at such and such revival and had no clue what the gospel was. Absolutely no understanding. But mom and daddy wanted me to do it. The pastor seemed to be kind of pressuring. My friend did it, and I jumped in. I mean, it's like, I wish I had the percentages of how many people I sat in a testimony where it was like, I was really confused for the first 25 years of my life because I was baptized in a church that never asked me any questions and didn't care whether I understood the gospel or not, or just assumed. Maybe didn't care. That sounds maybe too rude or mean, but but just assumed. Oh, yeah, they, they, they get it. And I'm saying... I think we're not paying careful attention uh, on the most important issue in the universe, which is whether someone's saved. Yeah. We just have such a culture of we don't want to offend people. So if we dive too deep or peel back the onion too far, we feel like we're overstepping. Yep. And it's not a biblical worldview. Yep, exactly. Yeah, we're, it's all the way back to the, the culture is influencing us more than the scripture is. And right now, the cultural um, mantra, if you will, is is tolerance, 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 celebrate, 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 never disagree or push, right? And it's like, man, the gospel pushes though. <laughs> you know, it 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 draws lines um, that we have to talk about, right? Um, 
So reason number two, which we just kind of talked about, without meaningful membership, false converts maintain false assurance. False converts maintain a false assurance. So because leaders want more baptism numbers, they baptize people who shouldn't be baptized because they don't want to have hard conversations. You then have unconverted people in the church not grasping the gospel, not glorifying God, not willing to make any sacrifices necessary. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've had conversations with pastors. Nobody's making disciples. Nobody's willing to sacrifice. Nobody's willing to attend. And, I, and the root of the problem is not that his programs aren't sexy enough. It's that for the last 50 years, their church hasn't made sure that their church members are actually Christians, have the spirit. They don't want to obey. <laughs> so uh, this leads to not only false insurance, uh, false assurance, but also false conversion. So reason number three, uh, without meaningful membership, wolves feed on the sheep. So one of the difficulties in our world, right, is that that the Mormons say they believe in Jesus. The Jehovah's Witnesses say they believe in Jesus. The Universalists will say, I believe in Jesus. The Roman Catholic says, I believe in Jesus. And none of those people mean the same thing by saying, I believe in Jesus, right? So the whole walk the aisle, are you a Christian? Everyone says yes. If they're not Muslim or atheist or Hindu or Buddhist, which has been traditionally the minority, just because they're American and they're not doing XYZ sin and they don't consider themselves to be an atheist, you ask that question, they say, yes, I'm a Christian, right? Words matter. <laughs> if our definitions aren't the same, right, then not only are you inviting false converts, but then you're inviting that person in and now all of a sudden you're having Mormon or Jehovah's Witness or Roman Catholic doctrine being taught in your kids' Sunday school classes or your small groups or your prayer time or whatever. So it's not just false assurance, it's false teaching that we're trying to guard against. I once had a guy go through our entire membership process. Did the full thing, six weeks. He actually met with Nick. It was his first time Nick went through the membership class with somebody. Uh, and he was doing a, a student missionary thing at the church, and it was one of his tasks. And so he goes through the membership class with this guy. At the end of it, we get to our final interview. He sits down, and he, and he says, okay, I love your church. I love the community. I don't believe in the Trinity, that Christ is the only way of salvation, that Scripture is inspired. Um, but, and I believe that homosexuality is okay but I really love the community here and I would like to join your church. <laughs> and I was like, well, brother, I'm glad you love the community. <laughs> but, but joining our fellowship means something different than attending. We would love for you to attend because we want all of those views to be changed, right? <laughs> but, but you can't serve, hand out, you can't even hand out welcome cards at the door because I don't want someone thinking that you're associated with our church and them having a conversation with you later and them thinking our church doesn't believe in the Trinity or that Jesus is the only way salvation or that scripture. I was like, that just can't happen. Now, he was a little bit upset and stopped coming to our church. But what's my ultimate goal? To glorify God or to get more people to come to my church, right? And so that was a moment where it's like, it's okay, I'll take one less person attending my church if it means being a faithful pastor protecting our church from false teachers. So, so because of all of these things, um, let me give reason number four. Let me give reason this four. This leads us to, to reason number four. Without meaningful membership, congregationalism is dangerous. Now, what do I mean by congregationalism? We'll talk about this more next week. 
But we are congregationalists of this church, which means that the church makes decisions for the church. It means pastors do not wield sole authority. I cannot decide tomorrow that we're going to build a million-dollar sanctuary, right? Because I'm the pastor and we're going to do whatever. Deacons do not wield sole authority our church. Church members come together and they collectively make decisions about the future of the church. That's the way it's our church. That's the way it is at First Baptist Church of Kenner. That's the way Baptist churches have understood the Bible for a long time. Again, we'll talk about that next week. But as a summary, church members throughout the Bible are the final court of appeals in matters of who's a pastor or who's a deacon. Final court of appeal of who's admitted into membership, who's kicked out of the fellowship. Final court of appeal in matters of financial stewardship. Church members have a vote. So if, if our churches don't think that membership matters, right, or we don't pay careful attention to the people that join our church, we welcome members who don't have the Spirit of God, don't revere the Scriptures, and then we give them the power to make decisions for the church, right? Why have business meetings traditionally in lots of Baptist churches been awful, right? It's fights. Everyone shows up for the smackdown and everyone not being Christ-like. And partly it goes back to this, that no one's watched the front door of the church and we've put people in positions of leadership because of their entrepreneurial gifts, not because of their spiritual gifts or spiritual qualifications. And thus you have an eruption of all kinds of problems. Um, I, I was recently talking to a dear brother who's pastoring in the French Quarter. You might know Vucre Baptist Church, right? Um, there's a, they've got a new pastor uh, down just like a block off of Bourbon Street, and he's serving the church. And he was telling me a little bit about the history of the church. And he said several decades ago, Vucre Baptist Church had a very traditional Baptist way of welcoming new members. You just had to attend three times in a row, and you became a full voting member of the church, of Vucre Baptist Church, in the French Quarter. Okay? And there's a group of LGBTQ activists that heard this is the way you join the church and you have a vote. And so a group of people in the French Quarter decided they were church attendance grew all of a sudden. <laughs> all of a sudden, we have double of our normal attendance. This is from Alex. Alex was telling me this. And they were thrust into a situation where if this group of people attended for a third time, they would then have the authority to make a proposal that they go into a member meeting and vote to do different things with the building, vote to do different things. And, and it was the first time that anybody at that church had thought, maybe this is an issue <laughs> of this third week. And, and so Alex told me that that situation is what led to the donating of Vukare Baptist Church to New Orleans Baptist Association. So the Baptist Association owns the building and they actually are not an independent thing because it protected them from that happening again. Um, interesting story about what happens when membership doesn't matter, right? When it's just kind of a free-for-all. Do what? I said, I wonder what happened to the ones that got in. I have no idea. I wish that I, 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 I wish that I could do more research and find out, you know, the specifics of all that. I was a member at Bucharest. Uh huh. Was in seminary. Yeah. 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 What year was that? Ninety-three. He said it was. He said this was three, four decades ago. So I guess. Well, we didn't. It wasn't close. three times you're in. It was really? salvation, baptism, really? discipleship class. We were pretty. 
stringent about That's awesome. Yeah. I wonder what pastor that was under. I have to ask Watson Alex. was my pastor. Okay. But How long was he happened, there? Huh? How long was he there? He, he actually died in um, 1998. Okay. Like that. Yeah. So it was sometime after him. Right, right. Yeah. I, it's Alex, it's, it's Alex. I was asking Alex why the association owned the building and why, you know, they weren't, didn't own their own building. And uh, he said in the history that there was issues with membership. So I think what happened was that they, because it's an expensive build, building to maintain. Right, right. Hugely expensive. Oh, yeah. Termites, they couldn't afford it, so they just right. gave it over right. to Nova to take care of. It's, that's a, a prime example, even just the location. Like, if you don't have some sort of form of watching who comes in and who goes out, how easily something like that could take place. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've heard stories even beyond that, you know, of the whole youth group kind of joining and then like they're the only ones that show up to the uh, business meeting and they have the freedom to propose whatever they want. <laughs> and we want a lazy river, you know? <laughs> well, that's like a million dollar, two million dollar building. Yeah. And it's got doors in the back yeah. and everything. And yeah. so and it's expensive to maintain and we have like 20 members. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so yeah. it's like 20 members, it's not sustainable. Right. So. Yeah. Okay, so if something crazy like the Lazy River or, <laughs> you know, worse uh, is proposed, does the pastoral staff have, like, veto power? Or, you know, for lack of a better word. I mean, I'm just, this is all very new to me. Right, which, right. You know, so, I mean, so we could... Just propose everything in the majority rules. We voted every the majority. Yeah. Vote is good. Yeah, I mean it's three fourths. The way that we organize it is three fourths. Well, I mean it's it, it depends on how you spin it though, because the opposite is that you have a dictator of a pastor who rules who is fallible and 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 possibly very sinful. And I've been a part of churches that have been that where the pastor. Um, wielded that authority and said, we're building a million and a half dollar building. Whether any, you know, if you don't like it, you can leave. And there was no kind of vote. And here's the thing. No matter how your bylaws are set up, and no matter whether you want to be pastor ruled or whatever, at the end of the day, every church is congregationally ruled because you vote with your feet. Right. Every, every congregation, the sole authority are the members because the members are going to vote some kind of way. They're going to submit to the leadership and stay apart, or they're going to, or they're going to jet, right? And so, so even practically speaking, if you tried to be sort of an elder ruled, like, like, no, the pastors have veto power, or they have whatever, sure, they can veto all they want. But if half the congregation disagrees with that, guess what? Half the congregation's gone. Yeah. So, so, you know, guys that are elder ruled, I mean, I've got friends that live in or that pastor churches that are elder ruled. So the elders make all the decisions and they just kind of inform the church, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, in theory you are, but what if you don't have a church to <laughs> inform any decisions about? Um, so, so next week we'll look at congregationalism more as far as like uh, evidences of Paul even saying you've done this by the majority and, and different things. Um, but the point today right now is that if you're going to be congregationalism, is when members are going to have a vote to help decide corporately what you do, it's important that those members are Christians, right? Mm-hmm. And they're, they're meaningfully a part of things. Did somebody have a question here? I saw a hand. No? Okay. 
Um, so we could, we could make lots of arguments for membership. Um, you can make arguments from the word pictures we looked at last week, right? Families have members. Bodies have members. Temples have interlocking, independent bricks. Uh, but the strongest argument for meaningful membership is actually the doctrine of church discipline. Um, to me, this is the thing that is the clearest, and that's reason number five. Without meaningful membership, churches can't exercise church discipline, right? So there has to be a meaningfulness of being in the fellowship if the Bible commands us to love people to the point of where we'll ask them to leave the fellowship or be out of the fellowship. There's got to be a way of being in if there's a way of being kicked out. Does that make sense? And the teachings about the responsibility to kick out are crystal clear, right? So we're all quick to quote Matthew 28 as the Great Commission to make disciples, baptizing, teaching. But that same gospel in Matthew 18 is the representation of the type of community through which disciples are made. So look at Matthew 18, and you'll be familiar with this. This is not um, a super rare text, but... um, Dustin, I see you turning there. Can you read that out loud? Matthew 18, verses 15 through 18. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained a brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. So Jesus, using the word ecclesia, the assembly, group of people, he envisions a community of people that have both the authority and the responsibility to not only confront one another's sin, but to declare whether someone is showing fruit of salvation or not. I mean, that's big, and that's uncomfortable for individualistic societies, right? Nobody can tell me what I am or what I'm not or what I'm showing or what I'm not, but, but this phrase that, that truly I say to you, whatever you, plural, bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. It's a complicated verse. It's a difficult one to understand. My best guess at it is that the church has the authority of declaring what they see to be true on earth and it's representative of what is true on heaven. I don't think there's actually control of the church to say, hey, you're forgiven and then that's the way it is in heaven. But I think that the church has the ability to recognize whether someone is living a life that's consistent with the tax collector or that's consistent with someone who is a true follower of Jesus. And so this Matthew 18 text serves as sort of the, the foundation for what we later see in 1 Corinthians 5. And that's the big one, 1 Corinthians 5. So turn there with me. First Corinthians five. <clears throat> Someone want to read 
verses 1 and 2 for me. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. So in Corinth, right, in the church plant, there's a church member who's sleeping with his stepmom, presumably. Uh, it's a continuing thing. It, he, he uses the present participle. He has his uh, father's wife, so he's refusing to stop. News of the sin has spread around, uh, and the church is doing nothing about it. They're brushing under the rug, looking the other direction. And I want you to notice that Paul does not rebuke the pastors here. He does not rebuke elders. He rebukes the whole congregation. Paul says, you, second person plural, you are arrogant. Do you not believe that this is damaging the church? You should be mourning, Paul says. Same word that would be normally associated at a funeral. There's a seriousness to this person who's a part of you who is now living in a way that that is totally antithetical to the gospel we say we believe in. So what does it mean you should do? Paul's command Remove him from among you. We see a similar command in Titus 3, verse 10. I'll just read it. You don't have to turn there because it's short. Paul writes to Titus, As for the person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. So similar format to Matthew 18. Warning once, warning twice, having nothing more to do. This At the very least, this means removing someone from the church membership, not letting them serve in official capacities, but particularly not allowing them to partake in the Lord's Supper. Um, in other words, assume that this person is not a Christian because of the life that they're living. So look, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 3. Continue on in it. I got this recorded. Yep. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 3. For though absent in the body, I'm present in the spirit. And as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled. So when you come together, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord, Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So. Paul is super clear. Okay, church in Corinth, this is what you do. When you assemble, so this particular fellowship of people who regularly assembles together, right? When you gather for the corporate members gathering, you are to deliver this man to Satan. Now, the language alone in this tells us something about what Paul believes about the church, right? In Paul's mind, there's an inside the church and there's an outside of the church, and outside of the church is where Satan reigns. You see that? Deliver him outside, outside for the destruction of his flesh. And he says, deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. So in, in Paul's mind, outside the membership is a dangerous place. It's a place where the man will no longer enjoy the fellowship of the church, partake in the Lord's Supper of the church, serve in the church, receive the accountability of the church. Outside the church is the place where the man will have freedom, total freedom, 
to chase his sin as far as he wants all the way to the end, which is self-destruction. A place where there is no one who will love him enough to warn him any further. Don't go this direction, right? And honestly, you can see it in your own spiritual life. This is the direction we drift when we're not meaningfully a part of a local church, right? I mean, outside of the local fellowship of the church, Satan has a heyday with us. So why in the world would Paul command, um, you know, because it seems difficult. Why in the world would Paul command for him to be kicked out into that, right? Well, according to Paul, what? Yeah, so in Paul's mind, it's actually the hard conversation. It's actually the removing him from the benefits of the church that may lead him to recognize the seriousness of the direction that he's running. And the hope is that he will truly be saved in the last day, Uh, that he can't just exist in our fellowship thinking that he's saved and continuing on in his life. We want to say hard stop. No, we see no evidence of genuine salvation. And so turn now, mayday, mayday, run. You know, this is bad. And the hope is that they actually get saved because of our addressing. Now, I've heard of wonderful stories of people coming to faith years after a church has taken this final step. Um, I pray for the people in our church that we have disciplined that we would see that same testimony as well. Um, the accusation we want to hurl at Paul is that he's unloving, right? Um, that the church would be unloving to do this. Uh, but in reality, and you should recognize this from the membership class, um, the whole motivation is love to even take this step. So motivation number one, um, we practice church discipline because love for the individual compels us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, nothing can be more cruel than a leniency which abandons others to sin. Nothing can be more compassionate than a reprimand which calls another Christian in one's community back from the path of destruction. So a right understanding of church discipline in our church will directly uh, relate to our understanding of how much we're willing to love someone. And it will directly relate to our, our version of the gospel, our vision of the gospel. So, so there's a book called Church Discipline. It's a little red book. And this is just so good. The book starts on page one. He presents two gospels. Gospel number one and gospel number two. Okay? I want you to listen to gospel number one. All right? So here's gospel number one. I wish I had it on the screen. God is holy. We've all sinned. We're separated from God. But God sent his son to die on the cross and rise again so that we might be forgiven. Everyone who believes in Jesus can have eternal life. We're not justified by works. We're justified by faith alone. The gospel calls all people to just believe. And an unconditionally loving God will take you as you are. That's beautiful and right. Right? That's true. But that's period. Gospel number one. Now listen to gospel number two. God is holy. We've all sinned, separating us from God. But God sent his son to die on the cross and rise again so that we might be forgiven and begin to follow the son as king and Lord. 
Anyone who repents and believes can have eternal life, a life which begins today and stretches into eternity. We're not justified by works, but we're justified by faith alone, and our faith's work is never done. It's never alone. The gospel, therefore, calls all people to repent and believe Contraconditionally, we'll talk about that word, loving God will take you contrary to what you deserve and then enable you by the power of the Spirit to be holy and obedient like His Son. God reconciles you to Himself, to His family, the church, and enables you as His people to represent Him to the world. So, gospel number one stopped at come, believe, be forgiven, period. Gospel number two said, come, believe, be forgiven, and be transformed. Right? Isn't gospel number two a fuller picture? If we take regeneration out of the promise of the gospel, then I think that we've lost, I don't want to say lost the gospel entirely, but we have definitely lost a very, very important component of the gospel. I mean, when you read the book of Ephesians, the emphasis of the celebration is not just forgiveness. It's the transformation that comes from the forgiveness. It's the freedom from being dead to now being alive, right? And then the immediate transition of Ephesians 3 is now you're part of the church, and this is what it looks like. A church that doesn't practice church discipline is a church that preaches gospel number one primarily, Because we say it doesn't matter if you look like a Christian. It doesn't matter if there's unrepentant sin. Um, A gospel number two preaching church says, here's the gospel. It saves you and it also changes you. And if there is no change, then we're worried about whether it saved you. Right? Um, By your fruit. fruit. By your fruit. fruit. That's right. It's fruit. That's right. Absolutely. It comes from our salvation. Right. The being transformed heart. Right. That's right. Yep, absolutely. And it's our responsibility um, to to lead people to true salvation, right? And part of that is affirming we see God's work in your life, or denying we don't see any God's work in your life. <laughs> we're scared for you because we're not seeing evidence of the of the Spirit of God, which. The Bible says we'll be there, right? And so um, I think it's important that the church never says, oh, we decide who's saved or not. We don't, we don't say that. We say we can affirm that we see evidence or not. That's an important distinction, right? We're not casting a judgment. There's a judge at the end of the day. But we do have a responsibility to say we see this or we don't, right? So love for the individual, motivation number two. Uh, and we got to roll pretty quick. We practice church discipline because love for the church compels us. So 1 Corinthians 5, verses 6 and 8. 6 through 8, Paul says, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us, therefore, celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, what was the festival that they celebrated in the Old Testament? What do they celebrate to remember the salvation out of Egypt? Right. What's the festival in the New Testament? The follow-up from Passover. What replaced Passover? 
the Lord's Supper. That's right. Which was taken the night of Passover. Which was taken the night of Passover. Right. The, the new festival that Christians celebrate is not the Passover, but it's the Lord's Supper to remember what Christ has done on the cross for us. Now, Paul understands something that proved to be true throughout the Old, Old Testament. Sin spreads, right? Whole battles were lost among the people of God when sin was hidden in the tents. And so when Paul says, celebrate the festival with your brothers and sisters in sincerity and truth, he's not talking about Old Testament Passover, though. He's talking about New Testament Lord's Supper. And you have a blank there. Lord's Supper equals visible expression of unity with the church and with Christ. So if baptism is the visible expression of the entering in, Lord's Supper is the visible expression of the staying in, right? It's the ongoing renewal and remembering of this is what we're united around, right? So 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16 uh, and 17 it says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? Uh, that Greek word there, participation, is it not a koinonia? That's that word fellowship from Acts 2. Is it not a fellowship in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of, body of Christ? Verse 17, because there's one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So the Lord's Supper serves the church as this ongoing, not only remembering our unity to Jesus, but our unity to one another. So one of the things that Paul says here is let's not partake in the Lord's Supper together at the same table with people who are not genuinely converted, with people that have leaven that will spread through that whole table. Does that make sense? And then I think that makes sense of verse 9 of 1 Corinthians 5, <coughs> where Paul clarifies, okay? And this is an important clarification. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and the swindlers or the idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality, greed, idolatry, uh, a reviler, a drunkard, a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Now, lots of people have interpreted that different ways. I think in the context, he's still talking Lord's Supper. Um, now, I've known pastors in the past that are intense, that are saying, if there's somebody in our church that we've removed from the fellowship because they've refused to repent, I will not speak to them. I will shun them. I will not have any contact with them. I mean, there was one guy that I talked to, and I mean, this is intense. He, they, they, there was a guy in his church that went off the rails, you know, cheated on his wife, all those types of things, and then... He, but he was a neighbor to the pastor, like two doors down. <laughs> he said, the pastor was like, so I'm trying not to associate with anyone. He's like, I'm trying to figure out how to talk to this guy when I see him. And he was intense. So like, he's like, when I go to the mail and I see that brother, I say, hey, Bill, repented yet? Nope. All right. <laughs> and he said, he said, that's the only thing. And we would never have small talk. He would never <laughs> have conversation. You back, you right with the Lord yet? Nope. And he would... <laughs> Now, I, 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 I understand where that pastor is coming from because he's reading this text and he's like, what does not associate mean? Um, but I think in the context, it's, in, it's talking about the assembled gathering of the church partaking in the Lord's Supper. Like, do not pretend that this person is one of you when they have chosen not to be, right? 
And so that's, that's where I land on that. I'm gracious to guys that are trying to figure out how to do that well. Um, but I think at the very least, right, it means don't allow them to participate in church life like they're one of you when they're not, right? And so verse 12 goes on and says, what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Um, Strong language, but according to Paul, this is love for the individual, but it's also love for the church. That sin would not spread in the church as if it's not a dangerous thing or an important thing to confront. And then lastly, uh, motivation number three, we practice church this one because love for the lost compels us. Right? So, um, and we've had this in our church already. Um, someone in our church living in very obvious unrepentant sin and then one of their neighbors being someone who I was trying to reach with the gospel, that neighbor being confused by what they're seeing in this person and then me saying, well, we're actually in the process of removing them from the fellowship because that's not representative of what we believe and, and created a separation from like they're not representative of the gospel that we, we teach anymore. And so without church discipline, the church just kind of opens themselves up for the world to watch a very hypocritical church without ever any sort of kind of correction that says, well, the gospel actually, this is what it's supposed to be, you know. Um, So love for the world compels us. Now, I want to, I've got more things here, but I want to get to question and answer because I think we've covered a lot of ground. Um, I I would just say this about if you haven't been in our church when we've done church discipline. I I think that sometimes it's kind of hard to envision what this even means or what this even looks like. Um, There's certainly a wrong way to do it. (laughs) Certainly a lot of wrong ways to do it. Um, So at our church, we, if you have not been around for very long or you're not sure, we do member meetings every other month where we get together, we take the Lord's Supper together. At that meeting, we welcome new members. But we also talk about members that we've not seen in a long time. And we pray for them and we say, hey, has anybody seen this person? Have you seen this person? No, let's pray for them, try to reach out. Um, I'll just give one scenario. In the first year of our church, um, there was a situation where a spouse ran off on the other spouse um, with someone else. And um, they had just become a church member like three weeks prior. <laughs> I mean, I was like, couldn't you do it like six weeks ago? No, no it was awful. It was awful. It was awful. Um, and what happened was, so when that happened, we began to reach out. The people who were close to this person began to reach out and reach out saying, hey, let's meet for coffee. Let's have lunch. Let's talk. Let's pray. And this, this process of pursuing her, this sort of step one, like if you, your brother sins, go to them. We don't see it as in like a one individual moment, one confrontation. Now there's a big group. Now there's a whole church. Three strikes, you're done. That's kind of out. Um, We see it as more of a season. Conversations are complex, right? Uh, Situations are complex. So we enter into a season where only people close to the situation are the pursuing that person and pleading with them to repent, right? Then... uh, if there's no repentance, it grows to, to more, normally that's one or two, but now it grows to other people who are close to this person who can speak into the situation. They go. And the last step is normally not until for like a year. And we're like, 
go to the, I'll stand up in front of the whole church at a members meeting and say, you may recognize you haven't seen this person in six months or eight months or nine months or 10 months. I'm not going to give you all the details, but this person is running down the path of destruction. If you have any relationship with this person, take the time between this member meeting and the next member meeting to reach out to them. Here's their email. Here's their cell phone. Chase them like their lives depended on it. Invite them for dinner. Pray for them. Call them back. If nothing changes in the next two months, we're going to come together. Does, does anybody see any potential fruit of repentance, right? <laughs> like we see potentially there might be a, a, a desire to turn back. And if there's not, then we'll say, okay, well, we're going we're gonna to do the final step, which is the delivering over to Satan, which is where we say we're done pursuing, right? Normally they don't want us to pursue at that point anyways, right? But we sort of step back and we say, okay, we'll let their decisions in the world and their pursuits lead them. And hopefully God will lead them to salvation in the last day, whatever sort of destruction that brings. So, so at our church, we try to, if we're going to err, we try to err on the side of patience, slowness, rather than quickness and harshness, right? Um, now, situations are different, obviously. Um, and we could talk about some of those unique types of things. But I want to close with this. Who in this room has ever been a part of a church or a member meeting where the last step of church discipline was taken? Have you ever been a part of it? Other than ours. Other than ours. Some of you may have, and it was really bad. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, saw, I saw Ms. Davis' face, and I was like, okay. <laughs> it was the first step, the second step, the last step, all in one meeting. It was horrible. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. 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 And, and so, and let me just say, speak a word to that, because um, I've taught this content in several different contexts. And one of the things that happens is, is people are very hurt by how badly church this one is done in their church at some point. And so they just, they just reject it entirely. And, and my response is, well, hold on a second. Like, have you ever heard a bad sermon? I'm like, well, yeah. I was like, well, let's not throw out sermons entirely because someone did a bad sermon. Like, you're going to have bad examples, very bad examples of things God's commanded us to do. <laughs> so let's not throw out the concept of church discipline just because you've seen the abuse of it. The same way you don't throw out the concept of church just because you've seen the abuse uh, of church. Um, that just there's a wrong way to do it for sure, but that doesn't mean that there's, there's not a right way to try to do it, right? And so, so bad examples. So, so how could it be a bad thing? I think quickly, acting too quickly would be a, a way that it would be bad. What else? Acting without the motivation of, the, of seeking the purity of the church or seeking the salvation of that person's soul, like just tired of that. So like, yep. okay, get out of here. Yep. <laughs> like without the love that is supposed to be iconic of the people of God, because we have been loved by Christ, we love so much that we're willing to say to this person, look, this is such destruction in your life. If you don't turn away from it, it will, will let you destroy yourself. That's right. <laughs> you can't come across judgmental of them. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That we have to, I think we uniquely in our culture, this is harder, right? Because, because of the influences of tolerance and individualism, other cultures believe in communalism. So the community does direct the life of the individual. Like the community comes together, the whole family comes together and tells you who you should marry. And that's totally normal, right? And everyone's like, yeah, this is, this is what normal life is. Well, like we don't go pour gasoline on them and light them on fire in the middle of the 
That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're thankful that they're not but, murdering us. Yeah. But the church discipline I was at was very similar right, to that. It right. was a Western, it was the same thing. Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. So I, so I think we have the cards stacked against us in our particular culture to do this well. Because, I mean, and I've felt this recently. I mean, I mean, just as gentle as possibly can be, just indicating that what you did might be wrong. And it was cut off. Yeah. And, and that's partly a product of our culture, you know, uh, is that you can't tell me what to do or not to do, right? right. Um, do you feel judged? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, you do. Every one of us. Yeah, yeah, every one of us. Because the Holy Spirit should convict us. Sure, it's never going to feel good. (laughs) We are (laughs) men. That's right. The nature is to... Response, that's right. I want to ignore this. That's right. Instead of thinking about what the Bible says. That's right. And repenting, like, yeah, I did do wrong. And this is part of the reason why, again, like membership class is important, because we talk about these things on the front end, so that... If there was ever a situation where you're confronted, you've had a season where you weren't in a bad season, where you understood these things. <laughs> it's not, you're not blindsided, right? You're like, okay, they're doing this because they love me, you know? Um, and maybe there's a kernel of truth in what they're saying and I just don't see it. And now I got to, you know, yeah, yeah. And letting it go, letting these things go is a form of acceptance. Yeah. In other words, you know, whatever the behavior Person is doing whatever. If you if you don't deal with it, you're you're accepting that. Right, right. I, I think it's an important clarification here too. And one way that church discipline can go wrong is that the doctrine of church discipline become puts your pastors in a several way your pastors or your members in the place of sin police, and that's not what we are. That's what pastors are not sin police, right? In fact, recent cases in in our church where there's needed to be a first conversation, people have come to me. I've said you are perfectly equipped to have that conversation. The, 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 Paul addresses the members first, not the pastors. If I become the, soul, the sin police in our church, it will hurt our church. If that's my main role, like if you've got a close friend and you're like, hey, they're acting wrong. And you come to me <laughs> to come do that for you. And it's like, well, you're the one with the closest relationship to them. Like, and you have the spirit, you have the word, you have this conversation. And if it gets to the point where you need pastoral backup, like you need help, I'm there. But I can't be responding to all 147 things. So that's one issue. And then another issue is discerning what actually is disciplinable and what's not, right? So we've had some heinous sins in our church, really bad stuff. But the person recognized it and said, I can't believe I did this, asked for forgiveness, and it was over, Right. I mean, you know, obviously, maybe they're not going to serve in a deacon role or on stage or teaching for a season of time until they can grow and 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 get past sort of this bondage that they're they're in. But it wasn't like step one, two, three discipline. It was like you're forgiven. The gospel covers you. Let's get through this together. So there's a difference between man who has his uh, husband, his dad's wife and will not repent and will not stop versus someone who committed a sexual sin and says, I did it, I messed up, forgive me. And it's over because that's what the gospel is. It's, it's over, right? So unrepentance, that's the scary thing. When they say, I know I'm doing this, I'm going to keep doing it, I don't care what anybody says. That's like red flag, red flag, red flag. The spirit doesn't let us do that. <laughs> you know, the spirit 
convicts, right? And so, so if there's no conviction, no desire to turn, that's when we start saying, okay, we need to start thinking through steps. How are we going to, you know, but steps one and two are probably happening in the life of the church all the time. And you just don't even re- recognize it. Um, it's just step three is when you really start recognizing it. Yep. I think in our culture, we've uh, infused uh, freedom in Christ for autonomy. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's deep, deep in our heritage. Americans broke free, right? Independence. Um, so, so it's deep in our capitalism. It's deep in, you know, and I'm not against capitalism, but intrinsic into capitalism is you do you, you make it work. <laughs> Nobody can. And so, so it's deep into our, our fabric of who we are. So a few minutes, any questions or thoughts um, at all about any of these concepts. I do have a question um, because I, I, I haven't been here that long. When it comes to the point where the church does uh, agree together, vote together, mm-hmm. to cast the person out or whatever, mm-hmm. how, how is that done? So there will be at a member meeting, we have a list called our care list. And it's just people that we're pursuing, I guess. Um, On the elder board, we have a care list. And then we have a care list that we'll actually bring to the church or say, hey, can you please help us care for these people, help us go to these people? So they will be presented on on that care list at a member meeting two months before the next member meeting. And we say, if nothing changes between now and the next one then we're going to propose on this Sunday that we remove this person and this person from our fellowship and we're going to stop our pursuit. Um, and then it's a vote by uh, majority. Uh, I think it's three-fourths, actually. Everyone has to agree, yeah, it's time to do this. Um, and then from there, what's the step? Do you notify the person? We will have already notified the person. So, so we'll notify the person, hey, on this date, okay. we're going to be making this proposal. Um, unless you want to meet with us and, <laughs> you know, repent. repent and turn things around. And if you do, bump, boom, it's over. We'll help you move past this. I mean, at any point, repentance stops the process, right? Um, what about after the point, though, that repent still? But then they have to go through the whole church process again. Of join, rejoining the church. Yeah, yeah, rejoining the church. Yeah, and, and we haven't had that happen. And honestly, I want to think through that a little more deeply about what rejoining looks like and just helping them assimilate back in. Um, Obviously, we don't have any scripture on it. um, So we're just trying to follow principles of pay careful attention, love them well, see that salvation or repentance is generally there before they rejoin. And so I don't know if that's a week or two weeks or if that's a conversation. Um, We really don't have a process for it yet. Um, Although it would be a great one to have. Is the prodigal son parable at all? relevant to not really because um uh the the point of the prodigal son parable is uh relationship between man and god israel and and the father um and the father sees all things perfectly knows all things perfectly Mm -hmm. and so if you tried to apply it to the way the church responds who doesn't see all things perfectly doesn't understand doesn't know if you're truly a son (laughs) then it gets kind of messy 
So you had to think about purpose of the parable um, and why Jesus was saying it. And it wasn't for how church life should operate. So. Yeah. I was wondering, would they have to go through the membership class again? Or would they just be uh, like a period of time where they're under a mentorship of a right. church member? Yeah. Would they work together, studying scripture? Or yeah, I mean, it would be somewhat situational. But like I said, it's something that we haven't faced and we haven't thought through enough to know what even we would do in that moment. I think we've just assumed they'd do the membership class again, but you know, the value of that would not necessarily just be the content, but it'd be the relationship with the person for six weeks so that they could discern um, where they're at. I would, speaking, shooting from the hip, I would say I would love for that person to address the members at a member meeting and say, I'm back and I'm sorry. You know, um, and I would, love some sort of reconciliation, some sort of acknowledgement so that they just don't appear again and everyone's confused. Wait, what did we, <laughs> you know, what's, <laughs> what's going on here? Um, and so, and we've had that happen in a members meeting um, with someone who, who was into like step two and never got to step three, but then stood up and said, hey, I haven't been around for a while. I'm sorry, forgive me. And then we all hugged her and prayed and it was, it was, over. It was beautiful. It was great, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah, we're having to think about that just with Fernando and Reagan moving back, you know, because they were members and then they left and they're coming back again. And not only were they members, I mean, Fernando, like, was part of the original ones who started the church. So he's got to rejoin. And I'm like, how's he going to rejoin? I guess we'll just. (laughs) They did leave for different reasons. Yeah, they weren't church disciplined. (laughs) They moved away. I need to clarify that. Thank you. (laughs) I need to clarify that. That's that's true. That's right. That's right. That's right. Um, okay, so I hope at the very end, I know I've had some conversations with you, some of you about just the institutionalization of our membership process. You know, it, 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 it is man-made, I mean, but it's in an attempt to obey biblical principles that we see. And I think that God intentionally left some freedom in the New Testament for how churches will obey these principles in their particular context. Because there's no doubt that our context is very different than first century mm-hmm. Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Um, and so while it frustrates me sometimes, I wish that God would have given us the manual, you know, just do this, do that, do this, do that. I do see the value of applying these principles in different generations, in different nations, in particular churches. Um, but do not believe the lie, and this is a big one, and then we'll, we'll go, that says, oh, church discipline and church membership, it's an American concept because of their institutionalization. You know, it doesn't work overseas. And you talk to Julio and you ask Julio what's needed at the church in Timor-Leste the most, it's this. He's like, man, we need this in our churches. It doesn't matter if you're in third world you know, country or, or this country. Sin's the same. Salvation's the same. Church is the same. It doesn't have to be a booklet that we, they self-publish on Amazon, right? <laughs> Which is what we do. But something has to be done so pastors pay careful attention and it means something to be a part of the fellowship taking Lord's Supper together. It's up to them to figure out how they do it. Right. All right. Let's uh, thank the Lord for this, and then let's go assemble together. No delivering over to Satan this morning. So, uh, Lord, we thank you for uh, just your word and how clear you make um, many things. Father, we are so limited in our understanding and even in our ability to apply some of these things, God. And so we trust your spirit, and we ask that you would guide us to be faithful. Um, to obey these things which you've inspired. So we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.